I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Nancy Collier. You know, Nancy, I should have been professional and asked you this before we started, but we're already rolling. Is it Collier? Is that how it's pronounced? Perfect. Thank you. I, You know, people always mispronounce my last name to the point where I don't even think twice about it, but I do appreciate when they ask before. Anyways, let me read your bio now that we're off to this great start. Nancy Collier is a psychotherapist, an interfaith minister, author, and veteran meditator. She's the author of Inviting a Monkey to Tea and, more recently, The Power of Off. Nancy is also a regular contributor to Psychology Today and The Huffington Post. For more information, check out her website at www.nancycollier.com, and we'll have the link. So if you are watching or listening to this, just scroll down a little and click on the link. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes. So The Power of Off, this is a wonderful book, a very timely and important read for so many people, myself included. Um, I loved it. I loved it. And it was from our mutual publisher, Sounds True. So that's always fun as well. Um, okay. Let's jump right into it. Let's let's talk about Addicted to Technology, which, you know, kind of that's the big umbrella that the whole book falls under. And then, you know, we're going to unpack that. But so what I what I really appreciate right off the bat about this book is that you even admit to being addicted to technology, you know, hence some of your inspiration for writing this in the first place. So. I would love for you to talk a bit about that, if you could, and how it's changed or what's changed for you. Sure. Yes, uh, I was an addict, no question, um, and particularly to email. Mm. I don't know quite why. I do have a little bit of a sense. There's something, you know, that gambler's brain that you never know what's going to come down the pike in there. <laughs> yeah, right, right. right. Sense, but there is this sort of lottery mentality. Um, and I really started seeing in my clients and my friends and myself and my family 
that the way we were behaving was really no different than any other addiction. And as you know, it has all the markers of addiction. So the fact that we're giving up other activities so that we can use technology more. The fact that when we can't use technology, we're really irritable and we're depressed and we're frantic for, for many of us. And the fact that it's negatively impacting our lives and we're aware of that. Yeah. And it's not giving us ultimately what we need. And yet we keep using. And we also realize that there's a part of us that knows this is not good. We want to stop. We want to at least cut down, not stop, because stopping is not an option any longer. Right. But we cut down and we don't, we won't, we we can't. So these are these are addictive markers. And you know, it would be a lot of people say to me, Well, what's the big deal if you're addicted? It's not like you're, you know, falling down in an alley or it's not it's not like you're gonna die physically from this. Right. At least we don't about that part yet good point yeah. radiation and so on but what we do know is that like any addiction that slowly your life gets smaller and smaller and it becomes more about your substance of choice and that we're less and less present in our lives we're less here's the the real thing the sad part is we're less able to derive joy yeah. if we're not using our substance. So then there's depression and there's anxiety and we start to believe that we can't live without our device. Right now, 70% of people polling say that they can't live without their device. 50% of millennials say they'd rather give up their sense of smell than their device. Yeah. You know, 50% of people, not just millennials, when they wake up in the middle of the night are checking their email or checking their phone. So this is an addiction, and, and it's going to lead us, it is leading us to where all addictions lead to, which is nowhere good. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, uh, like I said, that's why I find this is such a timely and important book. You know, I, I have written candidly about my own struggles with drugs and alcohol and even food at times, uh, and I never really thought about technology as an addiction. And then I started recognizing uh, over the last several years that, wow, it's kind of my phone is attached to my hip. If if I have a free minute, you know, instead of mindful breathing, I'm seeing, do, do I have an email or, you know, this or that? And I recognized, you know, it wasn't a completely out of control problem, but it was a problem. It was an issue. I saw a meme that I thought is is funny, yet kind of sad. And it's a picture of a bunch of teenagers all staring at their cell phone while they walk. And the caption says, the zombie apocalypse is already upon us. You know, and it's funny but true. Like, really, you know? It's kind of tragic in a certain way. You know, one of the things that woke me up to write the book was for many, many years before I got involved in, in spirituality and, and many other things, I had this sense that the answer to some sort of underlying anxiety or some sort of not completeness was outside of me. Mm -hmm. And and probably the greatest gift that all of the paths I've followed have has offered me, have offered me, is the realization that my own company or my own presence 
is my refuge. And what I started to recognize in my behavior around technology was the creeping in of that feeling again, that being with just myself was being nowhere, or that I was a kind of vacuum. And that started to, that had sort of the aroma or the the whiff of something that I knew I could not return to. Mm. And I had to reclaim a kind of presence that had value regardless of, you know, what was outside being offered in my phone, being offered by social media, you know, and come back to an enoughness, a completeness myself. So well said. For me, one of the times I really started to recognizing this issue was in the grocery store. I'm standing in line at the grocery store. Now it could have been anywhere, but I just remember clearly the grocery store. And it would be kind of a, you know, just an awkward, uh, awkward feeling of, you know, like waiting. What do I do? What do I do? Of course, you know, and I've been on the path for some time at this point. So it's like, you know, the, the trainings will tell you, go into your breath, be here now. You know, Ram Das, one of my favorite teachers and teachings. Yet it, it just, there was that awkwardness. So what do I do? I pull out my phone, like I said before, and I just look. Not, what am I looking at? Nothing really. Just a- anything to take me out of this awkward feeling. How yeah. how sad, you know, that, that that was the case. But I'm also grateful that I was able to bring awareness to that. And granted, there are still times I'll catch myself doing it. I am not perfect by any means, but so much fewer and far, uh, you know, less far between than it used to be. So... Which is what we can hope for as human beings. You know, in a sense, it's not technology doing this to us. Right. Technology is appealing to a kind of inner reptile in Mm. all of us, right? That wants addicted, loves substances. It loves to be distracted. It's the, you know, part of us that eats the fifth bowl of ice cream knowing (laughs) we're going to be sick. It's all of that. And so it's not about judging that part of ourselves. Again, like you just said, it's bringing awareness to this thing, this smartphone, this whatever it is, is the perfect ally, the perfect companion to our inner addict. It's just built for that. And so, you know, like all addictions, we have to create a separation between the impulse to use and the using. There has to be a break between those because as long as we're being dragged around by every impulse, every pleasure drive, right, then we are prisoners really of whatever impulse arises, whatever our mind is shouting at us or, or suggesting or whispering in our ear, you could use right now, you could get out of this awkward pose. We have to be able to hear that and then have our more evolved self make a decision about how do we want to be with that impulse. Yeah, very well said. And now I, I know you've already talked a little bit about this, but I'd like to explore this a little bit further with you because I know a lot of my audience, not all, but a lot of them um, are either struggling with or have struggled with drugs and alcohol addiction there. And I can imagine some people listening saying, okay, I understand how technology can be an addiction, but like you said earlier, it's not going to leave me in the gutter. You know, it's, it, it didn't almost bring me to the brink of death though. Again, who knows, maybe with the radiation we'll see in some years, but, but I really appreciate how you, you, you do talk, you know, at length and you elaborate in your book about that, you know, about how 
it is it can be just as serious as drugs or alcohol. So I'd like to just explore that point a little bit further with you again, just for anyone who might be listening or watching saying, "Eh, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing is, you know, we can't talk as dramatically about, you know, people falling out of cars or, you know, ending up with a, you know, uh, in the hospital and so sure. on. But what we're talking about may be more subtle, but I see it in my office as equally profound. What I'm seeing is that people feel an enormous sense of emptiness in their lives, an enormous enormous sense of disconnection, a sense that they don't quite know when their real life is going to start happening, a sense that they're not on their real life, a kind of loneliness. Um, So there is a kind of um, emotional epidemic that's happening right now, an epidemic of meaning, if you will. And there's something else also happening, which is Our relationship, again, with ourselves is changing fundamentally so that we don't see ourselves as a destination. We don't experience our own being as a place to be. So we we are spending our lives right now, in essence, trying to outrun ourselves, to get to the end of our life without having to bump into ourselves in any way, to stay distracted, to stay entertained. But what's starting to happen is that we're developing a dread of our own presence, of running into ourselves in the middle of all this. Many of my clients talk about at the end of the day, you know, when the devices are finally off, if they're off, that there's a kind of terror that's emerging of being with a non-entity. Well, we can't really ever have any fundamental sense of well-being if we can't tolerate our own presence. That's just recipe for just failure of of the most profound kind. I would also say that what's changing in 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 a very um, disturbing way is our relationship with our lives, so that we are no longer directly experiencing our life. You know, we we I was recently in Costa Rica, and I went on a tour through the rainforest with a mom of uh, three kids from 17 to 23 and another couple in their 30s. And all of them, I will say, every age range spent the entire time taking selfies of themselves in the rainforest and captioning their life, you know, kicking it in the rain, you know, hashtag sloth, check me out. So what's happening with that is that we are now using life to build our own brand, to celebrate our own identity. And the cost of that is the direct experience of life. So we're not in those lives anymore. We're either, you know, at our child's dance recital, taking photos of it so that we can later show everyone about our life. Or we're taking selfies so we can say, look at how full my life is and all these interesting things that I do, right? But what we're left with at the end of all of that is a whole lot of nothing. It's a whole lot of photos in our iPhoto file, but not the direct experience of we've lived. We own those memories. We we have the the felt sense of them. So that's a that's a 
a consequence of our addiction that is not quite as languageable, if you will, yeah. as the hospital, but it's right. just as profound. It's like having life itself kidnapped from us. Yeah. It's, it's big. It is big. And and I appreciate in the beginning you used the word emptiness. And, you know, that's that's something that you will often hear with those with drugs and alcohol. The drugs and alcohol are just symptoms, just like the technology, just like the empty sex, the food, the gambling, the shopping. These are all just, you know, ways that we're practicing aversion. You know, we don't want to be with, like I was saying earlier, that awkwardness, that uncomfortableness of standing in line. What do I do? So thank you. I think that was a really beautiful way to to elaborate, you know, on, on how, sure, you might not hit this rock bottom necessarily, but there it's so similar. It's so similar. Now, the tricky thing as you're talking. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a spiritual and sort of psychic rock bottom. B- very well said. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, towards the end, when you were just speaking about the selfies and whatnot. It's an interesting dichotomy I find myself in doing this author thing and speaker thing because your publishers expect you to have this presence online. You need to have followers. You need to have fans. And I hate it. Okay. I hope Sounds True is not watching this, but I hate that part of it. I don't like marketing. I, I don't like branding. I don't like any of it. I've gotten a little better with making peace that it comes with the territory. It's kind of a, I consider it a necessary evil. It's not that evil in the scope of life, but I don't like feeling like I'm selling myself. That said, you know, again, I recognize you kind of have to play the game and pick and choose your battles. This one to me, it's not the end of the world. So I've had to get better about, you know, if I'm out doing something, taking a quick selfie. But there's a difference, I think, between taking the selfie or taking a picture if you're in the rainforest to post it quickly versus, like you said, the whole time, pictures, 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 you know, like then you're not living life at all. You're not living your experience. Or if you're at your child's dance recital, of course, I understand a couple of pictures for memories to share. But yes, if it's the whole thing, you're not there, right? And then you will live vicariously through these pictures later on, but you weren't actually there, you know? But that's the tragedy is the cost of that is is the experience of life happening. Yeah. And, you know, it's also changing how we experience just little everyday events. You know, let's say we're walking on the street and somebody needs our help yeah. and we go to help. And, you know, at before our addiction began, we might have walked down the rest of that street and just processed, you know, what mm-hmm. that felt like to open a door for somebody or have that little moment. No one needed to know about it. Yeah. No one needed to know we were a good person. We probably wouldn't even tell our friends when we got home or what have you. But now, you know, as soon as it's done, we're out there, you know, social media, you know, moment of sweetness, you know, hashtag gratitude, whatever nonsense it is. And then we wait for the feedback to come in to determine what that then means. Mm. So we don't, again, we don't process the experience. We don't own it in the same way. And as a therapist, I really have noticed that that's changing the way people experience their lives. It's it's this sort of, oh, yes, that was something amazing. And then they return to a kind of nothing state again until the next series of thumbs up 
or likes come in or, you know, big, big feedback in some form, but the emptying out of it happens almost immediately. So there's no sort of organic inherent sense of self-worth or meaning of that that's absorbed. The other thing that I noticed that I find disturbing is that we get a lot of answers through technology. We get, you know, we can answer, we can ask any question and we have an immediate answer. But I was listening to um, grandparents, two grandparents talked to teenagers recently. I was just eavesdropping as I love to do. And they were traveling somewhere. I was in California and the, the grandparents were describing going up to uh, Napa and the kids said, well, you just get on your, you know, you get it from Google Maps. And the grandparents said, but do you have any interest in knowing, you know, is that north, south, east, west? Mm. The kids said, no. They said, do you, do you have any interest in, in, you know, figuring out how you might get there? Anyway, there, was a no, there were a number of questions like that, that the grandparents were cl- clearly asking about the process of figuring that out or what it meant to go from here to there. And the kids, not not their fault, growing up in a different generation, really had no interest in what the meaning of going from here to there was. And so in a way, we're, we seem to be breeding out of ourselves the interest in the meaning of things or the capacity to think or the, the interest in thinking. So we're being left with a lot of answers but again the answers are these disconnected sort of dots that don't help us process our world and feel grounded in our world and sort of understand our world and more and more young our millennials really just want the answers not not the way there and it's the way there that builds confidence that builds ground that builds our sense of meaning in life yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's really, really well said. Um, and I've seen, what in regards to what you are saying earlier with the post and wait for the feedback to, then that kind of dictates our experience. Was it really meaningful? You know, we're letting others dictate that rather than ourselves. And that's part of the way I've made peace with this whole branding marketing thing is there is plenty of things that I experience in doing life that I don't post, I don't tell other people about. It's just, this is for me you know, and, you know, random acts of kindness, all those sorts of things like to stay, you know, to stay in touch with that part of life. It's so important. I, there's a show I love, uh, it's on Netflix. It's called black mirror and it's, it's kind of this dystopian sort of show. Each episode is a one-off of just all these crazy, you know, again, dystopian kind of, you know, things that could happen in life. And one of the episodes from this last season was about how, it's somewhat in the near future, this episode, but how everything is run on social media, likes and dislikes. And so you have ratings as human beings. And these ratings actually affect if, if you can rent a car, if you can, you know, like you're, they literally dictate life. And, you know, I would think that's kind of funny, except I'm remembering this movie Idiocracy that came out many, well, not many, several years ago by Mike Judge. And it's, it's kind of, it was a precursor to what we're experiencing now with this whole Trump election. Not that we need to get into politics, but it's just interesting how, you know, art imitating life, imitating art, and on and on, you know? Well, I think you're, you're, you're speaking about something which is 
not in the future at all. You know, you get an Uber <laughs> right now and, you know, you're, you're rated as a, as a customer. You know, That's a good point. Constant, you know, moment to moment um, rating system of, of everything we say is being judged. And it depends on, you know, if, if your Snapchat is not opened, is left unopened, it's the, the ultimate sort of invisibilization you could receive. You know, that's the ultimate, you know, five thumbs down or whatever that would be. But, you know, I wanted to, to say also that we are living in a time it's it's paradoxical really because we at the at on the one hand we think that every cinnamon latte you know we consume is of tremendous importance right and that everyone receiving this information about what we're about to eat you know is our doting mother you know yeah. and at the at the on the, the other hand what's remarkable is that we have absolutely no sense of our own value, of our own meaning, if it's not reflected back to us moment to moment to moment to moment. So it's it's really we're, we're becoming kind of raging narcissists. But at the same time, we're really becoming these tragic sort of three-year-olds that if we're not reflected, if mommy leaves the room, you know, and doesn't call to us and see us, we feel we are not existing anymore. Yeah. So it's a very, it's a very uh, funny time to be living um, right now. Funny and sad but I, a bit, but <laughs> one other thing I wanted to just mention too, yeah. you know, about the social media, and it's another thing that's disturbing. And also, there's a lot of hope in this, so I want to bring some hope in too. But yeah. one thing that's so quite disturbing is that we are. What's happening really with social media is that we are placing more interest in the branding and the selling of content than we are in the content itself. So I'll give you an example. Um, one of my clients who is a musician um, was working with a new big millennial guy and so much effort went into the branding and the marketing of this concert and all of this stuff that went around it and so on. And they forgot to check in the process how many mics they were going to be able to have at this particular studio. And as a result, the music was crap, wow. was really crap. And it's just an example of how we're not that interested anymore in really the, the mastery of, of our crafts. We're interested. That's why, you know, the big superstars now are 17 and on Vine and, you know, they can wear a funny hat or they can do a split or whatever they can do. We're, we are, we are replacing real content and, and meaning and value and grown up stuff with the, the selling of it, the branding of it. That's, Part of, I think, why us as artists, us as content makers, in some way have trouble with this branding, 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 because it's really time away from the real work. It's, it's, it's time towards other people seeing the work so we can sort of make ourselves comfortable that way. But it's, it's the nonsense of it. Yeah. If you want to say, you know, really boil it down, yeah. it's not the work itself. Yeah. 
Really well said. Well, so let's say then, and I think we've already probably covered a little of this, but what are some signs that perhaps someone is addicted to technology? I mean, that might sound like the obvious question, but I think it can be a little more subtle than people realize. Well, one thing to start to notice is how many times in an hour, how many times in a day are you getting the urge to use? Mm. You know, as you said, it can just be, it can be in line at the grocery store. It can be, you know, most people now when they get to a red light in their car, they're checking, right? If you're walking on the street and it would feel kind of crazy for you to uh, just walk without checking your phone or to actually have your phone off, you know, these are these are signs. Start to Start to recognize how often you're getting the impulse to use and if you ever – I mean, and many people, they don't, if you ever say no to using or the minute you have the impulse, you immediately use, right? Ask yourself, is your life shrinking in some way? Are you giving up hobbies? Are you seeing your friends less in person? Are you doing less of the activities that in the past had nourished you, had made you feel well so that you can use more? Are you lying? I know many people, high, high functioning people who are going into bathroom stalls to be able to check their phones because they're embarrassed of how often they want to check. Are you using social media to avoid awkwardness in conversations, to avoid awkwardness in any kind of relationship? Are you avoiding parts of your life uh, because they're hard and using technology instead? You know, are you avoiding a conversation with a friend that really needs to happen in person and doing it by text so as not to see their face. Are you wishing to cut down some and not being able to do it? You know, when you can't use, do you experience signs of anxiety or depression or franticness or, you know, a woman in my office took a, you know, a six hour train ride to go back home and get her phone. She had traveled to D.C. She needed her phone. Wow. She went back. You know, but these are high functioning people. Yeah. And so, you know, another friend of mine who just had hip replacement ran through the Dallas airport, probably two miles to retrieve his phone from the Admiral's Club so he wouldn't miss the plane. He missed the plane. And when I asked him, quite, you know, frankly, I said, do you, do you feel comfortable with that? Now you're going to be laid up for a couple of weeks. You missed the plane. You sat in. He said, would you imagine I would leave my phone there? You know, these are, these are behaviors. These are, these are sentiments of addicts. So these are the kind of questions, you know, you want to start by asking yourself, am I comfortable? Is this working for me? What I find in my office a lot, Chris, is that while the world is changing tremendously and at such a rate, um, what we need to feel well is not really changing, mm-hmm. which is connection with people and to see people in real life. We actually need that. Yeah. The less time that people spend in person with people, the lonelier they feel. Yeah. To connected to a deeper meaning in life, which technology with all of its wonderful possibilities is actually um, not helping us with, to feel connected to our bodies and present in our lives. Technology is actually the opposite of mindfulness. It's working against mindfulness, presence, all of these things that fundamentally make us feel well, 
technology is moving us away from. So to ask yourself, how's this going for you? How's this working? You know, we have this unbelievable choice about how we want to interact with technology. Technology doesn't decide. You know, people say, ah, it's too late to decide, you know, the, the, barn, the, the horse is out of the barn. This moment, right here, the revolution starts right here. In this moment, I get the impulse to check. I don't check. That's it. It's that simple. When I'm with my kid or a dear friend, I don't put the phone on the table at dinner. Mm. Just don't do it. There it is, right there. It doesn't have to be any bigger than that. Personal responsibility. So I would I would ask myself, is this leading me to a fundamental state of groundedness, calm, well-being, and those sorts of things? And if not, okay, how do I want to make different choices? Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking back to, you know, we're going back eight, ten years, but I remember you know, living by myself, having internet and, uh, I'm pretty introverted by nature, which is something I've had to be very aware of, you know, especially when you have, uh, struggles with addiction, because for me, I would tend to isolate and then depression would come in, but, you know, I had the internet and I was on Facebook and, you know, or whatever. And so I was connected, you know, that's what I would tell myself when it couldn't be farther from the truth. And that's such a a wonderful point that I guess I'm just trying to really nail home for the audience about the importance of connection with others and in-person connection. I mean, I do appreciate technology is great. For example, you know, I get sick from time to time. It's human, you know, we're humans, we get sick. Um, You know, if, if I... I'm feeling a little lonely. At least I can hop on a Skype call with someone and and like this and actually see them and 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 yes, feel some semblance of connection. Not as good as the real thing, but at least there's that. However, you know, if if I'm not you know bedridden or, or whatever the case may be, getting out, finding community, finding spending time with people, so so important. And I learned that the very hard way, which is why I just kind of wanted to yeah. to reemphasize yeah. what you're saying. And, and, you know, I think what you're saying is so profoundly important because, you know, part of what makes technology so tricky is that it's simultaneously remarkable yeah. and also incredibly dangerous, both. <laughs> yes. You know, if it were just one, it would be quite easy to handle. But again, like everything, it resolves itself in contradiction. It's both. Mm -hmm. And that's why we we really need mindfulness. We really need to be awake and aware in our relationship with this because it is a very easy place to hide. It really is. And to not have to push ourselves to do some of the harder things in life, you know, it in the in the age in the digital age we value ease over absolutely everything we value you know not having to do something and yet at the end of the day having to do something hard is what makes us feel well mm. so you know if we take away all our tasks and we don't have to do some of the harder human things like you're going to meet a friend for a coffee and you're tired and you don't feel like it really And so the Internet, you know, we just send our emoji out and we say, you know, we send a rain check with an emoji. And, you know, we benefit so much by having a little grit and by pushing ourselves and saying, yeah, I don't feel like it, but I want to honor this friendship or I made this commitment and I will do that. And 
there's a real handshake between technology and being able to kind of cop out on the harder parts mm-hmm. of life. And while in the moment, oh, we can go back to our Netflix and our popcorn, that's great. But this is not what builds character. This is not what makes us ultimately come out of our depressions. It's not what makes us feel stronger as human beings and feel that we can face some of the challenges of being human. Right. Ultimately not serving us. Yeah. Well, so what I what I appreciate, you know, that I think you've already made pretty clear in this conversation and, and you very much made clear in the book is that you're not saying that or you're not advocating against technology. You know, that's in this day and age, as you said, almost right in the beginning of this conversation, I think is, you know, there's no way around it at this day and age. It is it is necessary, you know, for better or worse. It's here to stay. Um, But, you know, what you are advocating for is creating a healthy relationship with technology. So let's say I am I'm, you know, checking out this this conversation right now and I'm listening and I'm, I'm listening to you speak and. Realizing, wow, okay, I, I do have a bit of a, a problem with technology. How can that person start? And I'm sure it's not a quick overnight fix, you know, but how how can they start to make doable changes literally right now, as soon as they're done listening to this conversation? What can they begin to do to create that balanced, healthy relationship with technology? Great. So again, I'm going to reiterate what you said and I've said before, which is this is about finding freedom in technology, Mm -hmm. not from technology, right? In technology. You know, the the caves have Wi-Fi now. There's no there's nowhere to go. So we've got to do this. (laughs) This is more like an eating disorder than a drinking problem. We've got to find a way to eat and eat. okay. so what I would say is it starts right away with awareness. The very first thing is to start to hear when you hear that, oh, I'm waiting in line, I could check. Or, you know, the movie's not going to start for 10 minutes, I could check. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, I could play Angry Birds, I could, whatever your thing is, to see if you can start to hear that impulse and not have to actually act on it. Mm -hmm. That's the very first and probably at the end of the day, the most important Uh, piece of all of this and then to take a pause and maybe you could ask yourself in that moment what would I have to feel if I didn't use right now if I just stood in this line and I didn't actually get on my email or shoot out a text of the most recent thought I had what would I have to feel what would I experience right and can I experience that can I actually just be with what's here, right? So that starting to create that impulse so that the impulse to use rather than being an immediate signal I have to use becomes an, a red flag, a flag to say, hey, what's happening for me right now? What am I actually experiencing that I want to distract myself from, right? Mm-hmm. And can I be with that? So as we start to build that muscle, we start to have a kind of confidence, a kind of warrior's confidence that whatever tsunami is going on around us, we can stay right where we are and deal with it without using or trying to get out of it. And it doesn't matter what our substance is. This builds a deep sense of self-confidence. And then I would start to practice 
little behaviors, you know, if you know your thing is waiting in line, right, or you know your thing is at the red light, or when you're with a friend, you're always checking, you like to have that sort of two conversations going on at once, whatever your thing is, try just seeing if you can make it through a day without doing that. Practice little behaviors. You know, again, these are bad habits. We've gotten off on the wrong foot, if you will, with technology. So in the book, I offer a 30-day detox, which has just little tiny behaviors. You know, take a walk today and don't bring your phone. 15 minutes. Take a 15-minute walk and don't bring your phone and see, what do I have to feel? Because ultimately, we want to be able to feel like we can be okay without our device without our substance, without, that's what builds real confidence. So we we implement these little behaviors and we see, how do I feel if I practice that? If, you know, the last hour before I go to bed, I don't get on any technology. Mm -hmm. Or what if the first half hour, I just wake up, maybe I set an intention for the day, or I just check in with myself, whatever our ritual is. What does that feel like? How does the day feel differently? So there are a whole bunch in the book, but you can also come up with your own where you just challenge yourself to say, do I want to feel like this is a choice when I'm doing this? Not like I have to, because when we feel we have to, we don't feel empowered. So I would say the beginning again is awareness. And the, the one other piece that I would suggest to people is that You know, we really have to take ownership, Chris, of what kind of life we want to live, Mm -hmm. right? So that this is not going to happen to us. We're not going to just suddenly wake up and have a kind of mindful relationship with technology. It's too addictive. It's too juicy. So we have to really take ownership out loud of what kind of life do we want to live? What's meaningful to us? Because where we're putting our attention and our energy is what we're saying is important in our life. Yeah. So we need to get that in alignment with the way we're living. These two are out of alignment right now for most people, right? Sure. So we need to do. We need to be very clear about at the end of our lives. Will this, will, you know, Angry Birds and Netflixing and, you know, nine conversations at once and moving from distraction to distraction and ease to ease and entertainment, will that be a life well lived? Mm. We have to ask that question. Very important question to be asked. Um, You know, I I appreciate a lot of the tips or all of them that you wrote about are great or the the detox, the 30 days, you know, you're offering this and that. And I I appreciate that you brought up the uh, 15 minute walk, something that's very important for me, which I love is running and, and exercise in general. So I will go out for an hour, you know, give or take. And yes, I do use an iPod because I do like listening to music. But I'm not on my phone. I'm there like I'm very mindful of what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating it. This morning I went for a, a really nice run and there was a light rain and I love running in the rain. Um, or on other days I'll go to the gym and, and, and work out like an iPod, but I'm there in the gym. And I've had to catch myself, the judging voice, because I'll often see a lot of people in the gym in between sets, you know, looking at their phone. And it's like, really? You can't even work out without your phone? Like, I will never bring my phone on my run. I will never bring my phone to the gym. It's just, that's a, that's a agreement I made with myself, you know, along with, I also liked the, what you said a few minutes ago about when you're waking up. I think that's a very important time. I just actually did a podcast earlier today with another woman and we were talking about the importance of 
waking up and allowing yourself a little time, whether it's to set an intention, whether it's just to come into the moment, whatever, you know, your practice is, but honoring that. And I, you know, I had to, again, make that agreement too, because for me, that impulse was there. Like, oh, there's emails to be checked. There's social media to catch up on you. Whoa. It's not going anywhere, right? Those emails will be there in 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. The social media will be there. The voicemails will be there. It's okay. Just yep. And I can't tell you what a significant change that's made in my life. You know, dedicating that time in the morning just to start my day mindfully, slowly, you know, and, and with, with that uh, reverence for the day, for the fact that here's another day, you know, like... So, you know, that's what we're, you know, we don't want to lose is some kind of connection with the, oh my Godness that we're alive, you know, the awe of, of being, you know, what's happening is that because we're so, you know, um, distracted with entertainment at every moment. And as you say, we jump out of bed and we get right in the game, you know, Mm -hmm. right in the game, not even a moment. And what's missing there, you know, are the in-betweens, the spaces between the noise, you know, the, the, the quiet where we wake up to this whole bigger thing happening called life. You know, it's not just, creativity that happens in the silences or the spaces in between it's not just our greatest ideas but it's it's actually the felt sense of awe for being incarnated and you know entertainment is a pale substitute for that So I really encourage people to not lose touch, to remember that the spaces between are where the real, the real jewels Mm. lay. And, and, and we need to remember that it's not just our nervous systems, you know, turning them off, which of course is absolutely important, but it's so that we can dip into the real profundity of being alive. So huge and so well said. And, you know, something else I like uh, amongst the many, many things I loved about your book, but you do take time to talk about the benefits of technology. You make a, a really important point, I think, where you're talking about with, in regards to parents and teachers and children, how they can be of benefit to our children to help them learn to live with technology and not for technology. You know, so if, if you can talk a bit to that, you know. How, how can we do that? How can we help the, the, this younger generation, again, learn to live with rather than for technology? Well, I'll tell you, you are hitting on probably the next book. Mm. Is of all the questions I get, it's mostly from parents. Yeah. And this incredible frustration, and I, I put myself in this category, um, of just not knowing. We're really not knowing how to create a healthy relationship between our children and their devices. Mm. And they are growing up without any sense of what just being was. They don't know it. You know, our grandparents would say, I remember when milk was a nickel, (laughs) right? You know, we sort of, we got that concept. It wasn't so far fetched, but they don't really know when we talk about the meaning of understanding something or or hard work or 
they don't have a felt sense of it. They don't have it in the body. So they grow, they've grown up swiping, you know, they've grown up with everything available at a moment's notice. They don't know why delayed gratification or patience or any of these things, why they're valuable. They've never lived it. So it's a very challenging time to be a parent. And the first thing that I would say is to offer yourself just like the hugest embrace of compassion that this is brutal. This is a really brutal time. And, you know, kids are addicts too. And the rage that we come up against with our children, because it's social suicide, you know, if you take your phone away from your kid, it's social suicide. Their social life, everything about their social life goes on on that smartphone and their academic life and their everything life. So it's really like taking their lifeline out of their arm. Mm. So the few things that I have found to be useful are, first of all, we have to be parents. We have to be grownups, right? It's too easy to say, oh, my kid wants his phone and, you know, that's what I'm going. So I'm going to give it to him because that makes him happy. That's not the grownup thing, you know, and we have to be able to not have our kids like us. And that means that while they're living under our roof, we really have to set some real limits, some real rules. So they don't get their phone more than, let's say, an hour in the evening. They don't get their phone until they've done their homework. We have to be very, very uh, rigorous Mm -hmm. about the rules that we set and to expect real pushback and be able to tolerate that. Because what we're doing is we're introducing a way of being that they haven't known, that they can't know. And at the same time, just as important, we have to model it. We have to model the behavior. You know, how many times do we see in restaurants, it's the parents that are on the phone just as much. They're video gaming. You know, they've checked out. They've they've drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, yeah. they're, they're in too. So there's nobody home. And most times the kid wants the presence of their parent, not not. If you really ask them, they want the curiosity of their parents. They want their parent present, not in their phone, too. So you have to model it. You have to set some limits. And, you know, you've got to keep pointing your child back to how does that feel when, you know, you're on a play date and your friend is on the phone the whole time, even though you're in the same room with them. We have to keep our kids in touch with their own experience because the day that that becomes normal is the day that we're, we're lost. They have to still be able to feel, oh, I feel kind of agitated and twired, like tired and wired when I've been on all day. There still has to be some in-touchness and awareness of how this is going for them. Most of them, if you really ask kids, they don't feel great when they've been social mediating all day. They don't feel great when their friends are Snapchatting them nasty things because they can, because they don't have to see their face. They don't feel good having to communicate 24-7 so as to not experience FOMO. You know, we got to keep them in touch with how this is not working also. Right. Really well said. And, And great ideas, at least something to start to work with, you know. So thank you for sharing that. So before we wrap up, um, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. You cover so much ground in your book, but I wanted to to give you the floor here. If there's something in particular that I didn't cover or ask, something you would like to share with the audience um, from the book or in general, um, whatever you would like to say. 
you know, I want to end with something really hopeful because I actually, you know, there are a lot of people that a lot of people right now are saying, you know, it's hopeless and, uh, you know, we're on this, this collision course where there's going to be no individual self anymore and there's going to be a sort of collective um, internet consciousness and we no longer make decisions on our own and some sort of intelligence, some AI that's bigger than us and we surrender, right? Well, I don't actually think that that's the case. I still believe that the evolutionary um, challenge here, in a sense, is not to surrender to some larger uh, non-self, and I mean self in that more evolved way, um, uh, ether consciousness. I think we have this incredible opportunity to use this technology in a way that can help us, but also to not allow it to um, create a kind of amnesia about being human, about what we really need as human beings, and really getting clear in our own consciousness about what feeds us, what really makes us feel connected to something larger, to each other, to our deeper meaning in life. And, you know, this is a great opportunity to to bring in to to nourish our higher self which simply means making wise choices around this most recent substance you know and not drinking the kool-aid fully so i don't believe in being mindful with our device you know when we're on you know feeling the buttons more checking out the angry bird more i, I don't i think that that's a cop-out i think that right now we need to make mindful choices about when enough is enough and continue to really take seriously what we need as the human species. And that's more than technology. We, we need more than technology to feel fundamentally well. Mm. So I, I think that this is a, a wonderful moment to wake up in our own lives and use technology to do that. So beautifully said. I, uh, what a wonderful conversation this has been, Nancy. Thank you. And I, and I have to say, of course, granted, we're having this conversation thanks to technology. But that's why I love, like you in your book, you say it's not we're you're not poo-pooing all of technology. We're finding, working towards finding the balance, having the healthy relationship. So thank you for writing this book. The book is called The Power of Off. Um, I was super excited to see some of our friends, what incredible things they wrote about it. Tara Brock. Mira by Star. I think, um, who else did I see in here? Was Sharon, did she write something? Sharon Salzberg, La Kelly, some guy named Chris Grosso. Uh, <laughs> a lot of really cool people in here that are supporting this book. And I'm so glad that they are because it's so important for the time. So again, The Power of Off, published by Sounds True, tremendous publisher. Uh, Nancy, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Okay. 